Hey yo, and welcome to another episode of Opposites React. It is October 27, 2021, episode 92. My name is Sarah, and I am here with Tyler. How are you, Tyler? A bit better now that I had a nap earlier. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention your nap, because that makes you sound old. Well, I am getting older. Oh, At least is... I feel older. Oh. I know. All right, let's bring the energy. Ready? <laughs> uh. <laughs> I hate chocolate. You're not getting chocolate. A little sugar boost. Maybe when you're done. Okay. No, no, yeah, when I'm done. I'm going to eat during the podcast. No. No. <laughs> That's rude. How has your past week been? Uh, we did. T- I did one new game and we did one new TV show started. What was your new game? Blue Reflection. Uh, I started it because the sequel comes out, I believe, November 9th. And I wanted to know if getting the sequel is worth my time. Uh, so I decided to beat the first game. I'm very, I'm getting close to the end. I should beat it by the weekend. Um, so then I'll make my final decision then. But there was another game that came out recently that I also want to know if the sequel is worth it. And then Mario Party comes out. And then Shin Megami Tensei Five comes out. And then Octonauts, not Octonauts, <laughs> it's a good show. Um, Undernauts comes out. And Voice of Cards comes out. So there's lots of things coming. And I'm hoping that Black Friday saves me. Um, but yeah, Blue Reflection has been good so far. It's it's a game where you're a magical girl set at a school of all females. And half of them are there because they're special. One's a ballerina. One's an actor. One's a... I don't even know. One's a genius with 300 IQ. But yeah, you just go around using your magical, pow- magical girl powers to solve their problems, basically. So yeah, it's a Sarah game, but it's fun for Sarah. Good. Um, I haven't been playing really anything new recently other than I, the other day, just re-downloaded Forza Horizon 2 on the Xbox One because... That's not so surprising. No, but, um, because, you know, most people are probably aware Forza Horizon 5 is out in a couple weeks, two, three weeks from now. I think the actual release date's not... Well, 9th is when the normal version comes out. I think the pre-release is next Friday. Okay, but it's coming to Game Pass on the 9th, right? Okay, so yeah, so I just wanted to... I always remember, like, Forza Horizon 2 is sort of being, like... That was the black the, sheep. Yeah, I was going to say, like, not that it's a bad game. It's nope. just, it was a, such a different feeling coming off of Forza Horizon 1 that it was a little jarring to me at the time. Uh, I really liked Forza Horizon 3 and 4, and they follow the same sort of model that 2 set up. 2 definitely went more to the open world aspect compared to 1. 1, even though it had, like, an open world, I'm using air quotes here, it was very linear. And the map was mm. small enough, it was easy to remember where all the landmarks yes. were and how to get around just by knowing the roads, whereas 2 is a lot bigger and... They do a lot more deliberately just sending you different parts of the map for different races and stuff. So, yeah, two just didn't click with me for some reason. Playing again the other day, I was still just like, yeah, it just feels okay. Mm. Like, I, I definitely think it wouldn't be, like, my favorite entry in the series, but I just wanted to try and give it another shot again. And maybe I'll play Forza Horizon 3 and 4 before 5 comes out just to, mm-hmm. you know, five's back also in the mood. Five's also a very different setting, though, too. Yeah, in Mexico. and uh, But it's supposed to have a lot of different, like, I guess, I don't know. It's probably my own bias, but when I think of Mexico, I just wouldn't think it would have so many different locales and like different vistas. Yeah, I think we're just so into geographical differences. Yeah. So, but yeah, the videos they've shown makes it look, the map look great. And I think they said it's something like, of course, every game will say this nowadays, but I think they said it's like 50% bigger, the map, than Forza <laughs> I 4. I don't know if that's always a good selling point these right? days, though. It's bigger. Yeah. So, you but, need more emptiness. Exactly. <laughs> more room to cram events in on the map. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our listeners, I won't say who, but uh, keeps enticing me to, or encouraging me, I should say, to to buy uh, Battlefield when it comes out. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure you're 
on the edge of battlefield. Yeah, because they need another member for their crew. Man up with Battle- a four-man I, crew. Every time I hear you talk about battlefield in the past, mm-hmm. you haven't talked about lightly in the past. All you say is it's so slow. Well, you can't go from apex to battlefield. I basically told him straight out. I said, if I get Battlefield, I'm only going to play it with you and your friends. I'm yeah. not going to play it on my own time, probably. No. I'm playing Apex and MLB yeah. still. Like, so. Apex is way more your style. Running gun, always oh, yeah. moving or else you're dead. Where Battlefield's like, the tank. The tank well, drives no, It's not always about, the, not always about the vehicles. Like, I do like no, the Battlefield. It's, just, it's, uh, it's so slow. Yeah. Well, I just, Battlefield just sort of has that. You can fall easily into the routine. You can, just say, you can say the same thing for Warzone. You can fall into that routine of just, like, dying respawning like parachuting in landing dying parachuting in somewhere else dying right away and you're just like okay like what am i doing wrong here like or sometimes you just get unlucky i mean the map is so big there's so many players on it that well i think i think what makes it different from apex though too apex is has like pizzazz like character and everybody has their own special moves where battlefield doesn't really have that either well see, just see the thing to me that war I war is boring i think it differentiates apex for me even setting aside the different characters and all their abilities, I think the gunplay on Apex is just unmatched. The gunplay and the, the fact that you can play with people and not ever have to say a word to them. Yeah, no, the communication is fantastic. Yeah. Um, the, the, the ping system, I mean, yeah. the communication system they have in Apex is, is great. And a lot of other games have started to copy or... Yeah, Fortnite was like, it. oh, we like that yeah, one right. month later. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, like Battlefield and COD games, after playing Apex, the gunplay just doesn't feel as good to me in those games, but it's its own thing, and I appreciate it. Gets trying you should to have more played realism. the beta. Hmm? You probably should have played the beta. I watched people play the beta. And That's it not the same as you playing the beta, though. No. <laughs> to be honest, to me, the game, the gunplay to me looks very similar to like Call of Duty Warzone-style gunplay, mm. like the way the guns handle and the time to kill and stuff like that, so... I'm that's, sure it'd be. That's, what so did I say out, that was? November 19? Away. Yeah, it's like, no, I think it's uh, 19 or something. I think so. like that. That's the same day as Pokemon, so I remember. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's the better game on the 19th. <laughs> and there's Mario Party coming out. That's Friday. Mm-hmm. Good extra life game. Mm-hmm. That's right around the corner, too. Oh, uh, next, next Saturday. Saturday, right, yes. Our Friday is starting Friday. Not, yeah. We're, we're supporting them on Friday. <laughs> yeah. I took work off on Friday, thinking I was playing on Friday. With you us, are playing. You're playing, know, but, but you're not actually playing. Yeah, yeah. You're not on stream. You're just helping Catherine get some wins. Before we get into the topic tonight, uh, what was the show we started watching? You wanna... We started watching Mr. Robot. <laughs> you can yeah. sell it. I want to hear your take on it because I want, I want you to give your brief, since we're only like four episodes in, give your brief description on what the show is about so far. Mr. Robot is a show about a hacker, a super hacker, super amazing, super duper hacker. But he is a drug addict He um, and he has clinical depression. And he, I think, this hasn't been revealed, but I'm pretty sure he's schizophrenic also. So... Uh, yeah, he, he there's like this big plot where he's going to take down the biggest company in the world um, that controls like 70% of the world's uh, money and they're going to try and take them out so they can erase everybody's debts. So basically like no more student loans, everybody would be free. Um, so that's like the plot moving forward. What I actually think about the show, I don't like it. So far in the four episodes we watched, I don't like it. To the point where I don't know if I want to watch anymore. Like, I'm, I'll f- probably finish the first season to make my final opinion on whether I'd keep watching. But I don't like it only because this world that they've created, there's nobody to cheer for. There's nobody that I like or to cling on to. Like, everything is just bad. Like, every character, there's no ups, there's only downs. And that's just... And then you don't know what's real all the time either. 
And that gets really annoying also. Like, is this real? I don't know if this is real. None of this could be real not anymore. I don't even know. So that's also very annoying. Um, but what are your thoughts? Well, I, I seem you're more up on it than I am. I think you and I have very opposite feelings on the show. That's okay. Yeah. Go right ahead. That's why I, you... I think I, I think I have heard. I mean, there's four. I think the show ran for four seasons. Yes. Before it ended in like 2019 or something. Uh, I've heard it. It does definitely get better as it goes on. I'm not saying the first season is bad. I just think like there's a, it's like 10 episodes, I think. So you have to kind of, I think after the first season it really takes off. And I think you are supposed to, as you get, know him more, start to feel for the protagonist. Yeah. Maybe I, I, dis- I actively more. dislike every character. I can see that from your perspective. Yeah. yeah. And from my perspective, what's your perspective? The opposite. This is why it's opposites react. Exactly. <laughs> well, I won't force you to keep watching the show. No, I said I'd finish season one. Okay. It, but if it's still like doom and gloom and I don't know what's going on anymore, I'm not watching it. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll give our impressions on the first season when we finish it then. Fair. All right. So. We have an email today. Oh, and it looks like... Um, Oh, because we recorded early last week, she couldn't. She didn't get hers in on time. Right. So we technically we have a response to two separate podcasts yes. here. All right. So yes, this email is from Catherine. Do you remember our first, the num- number nineties question? Uh, scary movies. A scary movie you will never watch ever again. Okay. So, uh, Catherine says, "Good evening, opposites." So her response <laughs> from episode ninety, which Sarah just set the tone for that question, she says, "The movie that scarred Jordan growing up was Sleepy Hollow." Oh, that's yeah. like okay. Go ahead. I'm guessing she. Well, she, I, I'm pretty sure she. She didn't specify here, but I'm fairly certain she means like the 1999 Tim Burton version with Johnny mm, Depp. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. The Johnny Depp one. Yeah. yeah. There was like I think a version back in like the 50s or something, but I'm pretty sure she means that one. Uh, she she references the scene where the kids are hiding underneath the boards, mm. and the head rolls over top of them, and they can see uh. the eyes through the slits. Yikes! <laughs> <laughs> I remember liking that movie a lot. Really? Yeah. I think I saw it once and I was it. It's probably one of my favorite Burton movies, actually. Really? Yeah, yeah, well. It has a good cast and it's just, it, it's really creepy and, yeah. I need to rewatch that one again. <laughs> so thanks for reminding me to rewatch the film. <laughs> I actually like that film, but I can understand why, I guess, growing up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you're a bit younger, um, that scene, some, of that, some parts of the movie can be a little uh, intense. And for herself, for Catherine, she says, um, for myself, I think The Sixth Sense did it. Nothing oh. Nothing about that movie was entertaining to watch as a child. That may be why I refuse to watch any paranormal type of movie now. That's so funny because I remember specifically me and mom watching that movie. And then we watch it right again afterwards. Be like, no. Mm-hmm. We had to know. So we watch it right, <laughs> right away. Um, but yeah, I love that movie. So sorry, Catherine. <laughs> but again, I think I agree with her watching it as a child. That well, one, I wasn't that old either, I don't that think. That probably came out, what? Um, She's just a little baby. Was that 99 as well? That would have been I a year thought from, so. Yeah. They definitely did it before Unbreakable, and that was 2000. So, all right. Yeah, if, you, if you're a kid, you're not going to understand no, the amazing things no, that happened. Yeah. All right. And then her response to last week's episode, episode 91. Favorite director. Right. Catherine says, I think I'm in the same boat as Sarah. I can't think of a certain director that I can classify as my favorite I do enjoy Tim Burton's movies just because they're a little off. Or maybe I'm just choosing him because it's Halloween season. (laughs) (laughs) I swear a Zack Snyder was going to come. I thought it was going to come, but no, I guess not. I'd be curious to know if Catherine actually likes any Zack Snyder movies outside of Sucker Punch. We all know that's one of her favorites, but does she actually enjoy any of his other movies? Don't know. Let's ask her. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So she finishes off saying, great questions. And she signs off, Cat and Jordan. So thank you very much for the email. We appreciate it. And uh, yeah, hopefully um, this week's 
topic and the question I'm going to pose will get some more, some more replies out of you guys next week. I'd like to hear your thoughts on what we're going to discuss tonight. So let's get Wait, into that. Wait, I didn't give oh. you my answer. I know you had an answer. I have you an can... answer. I I promised an answer. Okay, let's hear your answer. My answer for favorite director, mm-hmm. it's Katsura Hashino, the director of the Persona and Trauma Center series. Are you talking about the anime? No, the, video the games. games. Oh, so you're kind of cheating here. Uh-uh, you said favorite director. <sighs> okay, I was talking about film, but sure, mm-mm, I'll allow mm-mm. it, I'll allow it. Thank you. So video game director. Yep. Okay. I honestly thought all week, like, I told you earlier, I would have probably picked, like, David Fincher because I respect him, uh, and he's a consistent director. But do I love his movies? No. <laughs> so I thought I'd pick somebody that I love their work. Except for Catherine. I don't love the game, Catherine. Not you, Catherine. I love the <laughs> I love you, Catherine. I don't love the game, Catherine. Spelled opposite of you anyway, so it doesn't matter. But yeah. Um, otherwise, he's my favorite. Now you may start. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very Sarah answer. I'll just say that. Yeah. Well, what do you want? Do you want, do you want me to have a, a silly answer? No. I just, I just think, I think it's funny. You couldn't think of a film director. You had to go to your... Literally could not. Every film I like is a one-off. All right. Fair enough. You haven't seen enough movies. That's true too, because we have opposite op- opinions on everything. So you never show me a movie you like, huh? <laughs> Maybe we'll both like Dune, and I'll like that director. But we can't go see that because you haven't read enough to me. You don't have to finish the book. We you have. See the movie. I, you promised you'd finish the book. How about we go watch the movie, then finish the book, no, then we'll see the movie again? No, it's not the same. I ha- <laughs> <laughs> then I got to pay for two IMAX tickets. No, we'll see it once in IMAX, and then the second time you see it, you'll just... No, you don't see it ugly the second time. That's... No. I guess, work up to the IMAX. I guess that's true. <laughs> so, I'm trying to think how to phrase tonight's topic, and the best way I can come up with it is... What are some of my favorite examples? And I'm going to shout out specific directors here again. What are some of my favorite examples of visual storytelling in film? Okay. And when I say that word, that's not, there is technically a term for it if you look up films, like what visual storytelling means, but I'm not just using a generic term here, right? Because you can interpret it many different ways. What does that mean to you? Wally. In like the way? starting of Wally or the okay. starting of Up. Okay, so elaborate on that because you're kind of on um, the right track of what I'm getting at. But. I would say movies expressing so much and moving the story along without words. Yeah, that's a main part of the some of the reasons why I chose specific movies and, and scenes to to um, provide examples for in, in this situation. But yeah, you're right. That is definitely one example of uh, of what I mean by visual storytelling. It's, I mean, they summed it up saying it with, it's not just without words, though. It's more just like, you know, how the director frames a, a, a shot or a sequence to mm-hmm. elicit a response yes. without beating you over the head with it. You know, there's yeah. no, no monologuing, no um, narrating. That kind of thing. So yeah, that that is one of the main examples of what I was getting at. But it also could mean other things to people too. So, like I said, I just when I was at work today, I just sort of on my phone made a list of some movies off the top of my head that stood out to me in that aspect. And I like that the, the two examples you mentioned. Obviously, I didn't even consider. <gasps> like I didn't. I wasn't thinking animated. I guess in my head. So, but that's so like you can control every aspect of that as a director for that, and that's yeah. what I think what makes it even better. Yeah. And I would argue, I mean, to start to not to argue, to um, add on to your point, it's harder, I think, to pull off in animation for two reasons. Number one, generally your audience is younger. Mm. So trying to... Yeah, Pixar is able to walk that fine yeah. line. But I was going to say, yeah, it's, um, yeah, you got a younger demographic and it's hard to get across certain um, 
storylines and emotions to a younger viewer without the use of words because obviously yes. that's yeah people thought they would take their kids to wally and their kids would hate the first half hour right. but yeah no you're right that that is very impressive from pixar's pixar's perspective now they were able to in the olden off. days yeah they don't really do that as much anymore i guess um but anyways i i, I don't like i said i don't have any kind of order these these movies are in order from like Best. best to worst or alphabetical or anything i just sort of like threw them down as i could think of them so i'm just gonna go into each one and uh and some of these movies you've seen so maybe you'll be able to give a little bit of perspective <gasps> on them but so and I'll, I'll mention so what i'll do here is i'll i'll mention the title of the film briefly mention the director which i probably already mentioned many of these films before <laughs> and um and i'll give a brief spoiler in case you guys want to i mean i'm not talking about like endings here mm. in most of these cases but i am talking about maybe some pivotal scenes in films so if you want to if you haven't seen the film you want to skip over that i'll just do a brief spoiler warning but uh so the first movie i want to talk about is shutter island okay martin scorsese directed i believe it was 2010 um and this isn't much of a spoiler so if you want to skip it you can but really i don't think this is giving away much this is in like the first maybe if you haven't seen shutter island you should have watched shutter island <laughs> <laughs> yeah this isn't like an ending spoiler because the ending for that film is amazing yes. i'm not going to spoil that but th- so there is I guess sort of, I think I have to, to explain premise. this. So I'm going to have to yes, briefly set up the premise. It's context. Thank you. I can't speak tonight. Uh, it's okay. You had your nap. I had my nap, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the movie starts with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, and it starts off with him and his partner. Like they're, they're, I think the movie's set in like the 1960s or something, if I remember correctly. But they're, uh, they're cops. And they're going to, uh, taking a boat to an island. Or it's like a mental asylum or a psychiatric facility. Shutter Island. <laughs> I I can't remember if that's what I don't know was if that, they, was it was actually called I don't think, I don't so. think it was but, <laughs> gosh it's funny I don't remember basic detail like that about the movie but <laughs> so long story short uh, his um, his character's name is Teddy Leo Plato's character's name is Teddy and he once with the open face I just Shutter Island yeah. every time I thought of it I thought like window shutters <laughs> okay <laughs> it could mean like so many other things like shutter as in closed or shutter as in like the emotion to like the to shudder. Well, I think that's a D, though. It's spelled two Ds, not Ts. But I yes. wonder if it means closed island. <laughs> Sorry. <It's> okay. <laughs> so anyways, there's a scene where, um, this is maybe half an hour or so into the film, Teddy and his partner, I don't remember all the names of the characters, so forgive me, but Teddy and his partner, they go to um, meet with the, the head psychiatrist of the island. Yeah. And played by Ben Kingsley. And he's sitting there with another um, psychiatrist or a me- member of their of their staff uh played by the great max von Sydow, who passed away some few years ago he's a mm. great actor but there's this great scene where um and so during the film i think i think it might be the first time you see it in the film but Scorsese does use it a few different times in the narrative is like a flashback sequence so in this situation you have <gasps> this is when uh Di- dicaprio is talking to this psychiatrist who's a german man yeah and he has this flashback to the war because dicaprio's character was um, again, implied through this flashback to be a, like an American soldier during World War II. Yeah. yeah, like during the, to fight the Germans. So it basically this whole sequence um, where it cuts back and forth between DiCaprio talking to the psychiatrist and then showing these flashback sequences of him. To, but the scenes during the war, there's no dialogue. Right. It just it shows him like like the way Scorsese introduces this scene. I found it so compelling visually. Is like because he's talking to the psychiatrist in the present time and they're playing this classical music in the background because yeah. they're all just sitting around a fire drinking, you know, brandy. and you Oh, know, it's what. Squid Game. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so, and then as he has this flashback, because again, I think the music kind of triggered it because he, he remembers hearing the same music in this, right. like, Nazi officer's um, uh, office when he when they went to uh, 
to raid this concentration camp. And uh, so the movie cuts to, they're talking about like DiCaprio being, uh, the psychiatrist is referring to him as a man of violence. And then when his partner interjects, he says, so oh, I didn't call you a violent man. I said, you're a man of violence, meaning that you've, you know. Experienced Right, it. exactly. And then it flashes back to him during the war. And basically it just shows this, not, this German sh- soldier on the floor covered in blood, implied that DiCaprio probably shot him or some other soldier shot him. But the guy's just bleeding out and, and DiCaprio is um, debating whether to let the German soldier take the easy way out. Like, because the German soldier reaching for a gun to try and kill himself. Mm-hmm. And then DiCaprio looks out the window and he sees all these frozen bodies because then the concentration camp, all the frozen bodies of the Jewish people that were there, and he just sort of like puts his foot on, slowly drags the gun away from the guy. <laughs> and then, I don't know. It's it just interesting to me that we, he keeps cutting back and forth between the present and and um, the flashback sequence. And then it's better too because as the movie goes on and you get more of these flashback sequences, you start kind of one. You sort of start to question the validity of the sequences. Yeah, when of, you were saying that, I remember yeah. a sequence that happens later mm-hmm. on, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that happened, okay. So, because, like, to my memory, up to that point, I've seen a lot of Scorsese movies, and... Um, Have you now? Yeah, and he doesn't do flashbacks that often. Hmm. I remember it a little bit in The Departed. Um, this was adapted, though. Right, yeah, this is adapted from a novel. No, no, I'm not saying that, like, cause, yeah, Scorsese definitely took this material from a novel. It was the Dennis Lehane novel. So I'm not saying he, he this flashback wasn't in the book. I'm just right. saying, I don't know. You, there's a lot, of, a lot of directors that rely on flashbacks a lot, like Christopher Nolan's one, for sure. <laughs> so you know, you get familiar with the <laughs> style. Memento is the flashback movie. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I think it was just interesting the way Scorsese handled it. And like I said, um, I think it's one of his best-looking films, Shutter Island, like from the visual, from the just the perspective of the way the film looks. I love the uh, setting. Yeah, the setting, the the mood, everything yes. about it is just, yeah. Dour. So that was my example of that. Like I said, I'm, sorry, I'm going to, I'm dragging this out. I'm going to move this along because I got a few more films I want to talk about. Uh, a lot of these other ones are easier, though. Okay, here's a good one. Um, Zodiac, the David Fincher film. Yes. Do you remember the sequence? Again, this is a minor spoiler, but it's maybe halfway through the film. There's a scene where they are, <gasps> the police are interrogating. I know you think I was going to go for the basement scene. I thought so. No. Okay, you're not. Okay. No, I'm going okay, for a different. Okay. I'm going for a different take Investigating. here. Investigating. Remember okay. when they? Remember when they go to the? Um, the this guy works at a plant. And they go to interview him at work yes. when he's on a lunch break yes. or whatever. So it's just, so you have Mark Ruffalo, uh, Elias Coteus, and Anthony Edwards. They're all sitting around this table. They're all cops, and they're interrogating this. Not inter- It's not so much interrogation. There's questions. questioning. They're questioning this yes. guy because. Um, I remember how his name came up. I think it was. I think it was like a tip that like a family member said, said to the cops, like, "Oh, I think mm. my, my 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 brother-in-law is suspicious. You should go interview him about something right. happened around the time of one of these murders." So, anyways, they go to work and they interview this guy. And throughout this whole scene, again, this just shows why Fincher is such a good director because the cops are are, are asking him all these questions about you know his whereabouts during certain dates and times and what he was doing and stuff. And throughout this whole scene. Um, Fincher focuses in on certain aspects of the man that um, like characteristics of who they think the Zodiac killer is and they're trying to see yeah. if this guy matches the, the description so like for example like the guy is sitting there in a chair and he crosses his leg and then the, the camera just kind of like lingers on his foot for a second and you see the cop glance down at the foot because they know what like what size shoes the Zodiac killer wore and what kind of Mm. like kind of tread he would wear so the, so the cops kind of like glance at the guy's shoes and again Fincher just he doesn't like you know pan the camera down to the shoe like no. dramatically like look at this it's more just like the way boom he, it's yeah. and then another time um, it's a watch too right so it? the guy is, is fidgeting with his watch yeah. and then Ruffalo notices the watch and then he asks the guy if he can look at it so the guy takes it off and gives it to him and then he kind of like just passes the watch around shows the other cops without saying anything yeah. and then eventually they all see that 
the watch had like the 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 same sign on it that the Zodiac Killer would sign off on his letters when he sent oh, it to the press. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're getting more and more suspicious of this guy, right? And I think it's great, too, when um, one of the few bits of dialogue in the scene that stands out is when the cop, or Anthony Edwards' character, he asks the guy if he's ambidextrous. And then the guy says, no, um, he's like, I'm left-handed. He's like, uh, they tried to make me when I was younger, but I can only write with my left hand. Mm-hmm. But then when a guy puts a watch back on, he puts it back on his left hand. <laughs> Right, which means yeah. you write with your right. So you're thinking, huh, okay. So again, it's just always like subtle cues during this scene. Yeah. And I think that's why, again, I mean, there's there's whole essays on YouTube of why Fincher is such a good visual director. Like, <laughs> I don't even need to explain any of his films. But in this, for a scene as good as, or Zodiac is almost like a three-hour film. And I remember there's one like four-minute scene just standing out because just the way it was shot visually was so interesting. <laughs> I think. Uh, when my mind went to like the basement scene that I thought mm. we were gonna do, I w- it just made me think that most horror movies have to be visually well done. Like they have to have well, yes, visual no. storytelling. The lazy ones just rely no, on sound. No, I mean design. the good ones. Right, that's the what good I meant. Ones, yes. yes. Yeah. No, you're right. Zodiac can, in a way, in ways, has horror aspects to it. Yes, <laughs> it the does. Way it's filmed. Um. Okay. Here's another uh, short one here. And again, this very minor spoiler in this one. This happens at the beginning of the film, so it's not gonna. Sp- you know ruin your enjoyment of that i don't think but if you want to skip ahead i'm going to talk about unbreakable for a second the m night Shyamalan film which as we just mentioned earlier came after the sixth sense (laughs) (laughs) but i think unbreakable is his best film i think it still holds up 20 years more than 20 years later actually at this point um but you don't like the sequels uh, the payoff was disappointing i'm glad he got to do it but i don't agree with the way he ended it (laughs) i'll just say i'm still gonna train unbreakable as its own thing I'm just going to pretend that, like, glass didn't happen. <laughs> oh, jeez. But um, do you remember, I don't know how much you remember Breakable, but the, the movie opens with a train crash. Yeah. It happens within the first, like, five minutes of the yeah. film uh, to the to the protagonist, David Dunn, played by Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. So, um, and again, look this scene up on YouTube if you haven't seen the movie before. Or if you have seen it, you want to jog your memory about this one particular scene. Just look up an Unbreakable hospital scene. It's probably the best way to just search it. But um, it just shows... So first off, the way the film is, the way well, the, the way the whole film is shot, and obviously Shyamalan did this intentionally, was to shoot it like a comic book. Certain scenes are framed like comic panels. Oh, okay, yeah. Especially the opening on the train where the camera keeps cutting between like uh, gaps in the seats and showing oh, like, oh, you know what I mean, Bruce Willis's character, and then yeah, you're talking okay, to someone else, okay. and it goes like the camera just goes la- um, laterally, like back and right. forth, like a comic panel. Right. But what I found really interesting about this scene, so there's this train crash, and Bruce Willis wakes up in the hospital, and. So he's he's like lying on a he, the camera is f- focused on the foreground. You see a, a, a um, doctor's working on a body, like surgeons working on a, on a guy who's obviously having a you know life or death situation. And Bruce Willis's character is lying on a bed in the background. He just kind of sits up, and he sits into the frame. So he's centered in in the background of this, right. right? And then the camera never moves this whole sequence, right? The focus might shift a bit from foreground to yes. background, but one of the doctors notices that Willis's character woke up, so he goes over to go ask him some questions about, you know, what do you remember about the accident? Where were you sitting on the train? But this whole time the camera is actually focused, like the camera hasn't moved. So it's the camera is sitting you're you're facing you're watching Bruce Willis interacting with this doctor the whole time. Right. But in but in real time you're seeing the surgeons working on this all you're seeing is this guy's body, like this guy's chest going up and down because obviously the guy's breathing oh, that, that, okay, that, yeah. that, they're, that they're operating on. Yeah. And he has like a, um, he has like a white, um, what do you call it? Um, I'm trying to think of what, not a napkin, obviously. What's a gown? Big, no, like, you know, if you're, if you're covering a body with like a white, he's got a white sheet on over his right. body. Like, yeah. you know, like you put like that white sheet on and you kind of, oper- you cut a hole and you operate around it. Not like, a sheet, but yeah. Well, you know what I'm talking it's like about. sterile field. Sure. Okay. There you go. So the guy, so, and then, you can briefly hear sounds in the background of like you know the guys were probably going to cardiac arrest or something, but but in real time what you're seeing is like this, um, 
the the chest the, the on the guy's chest the blood is growing like the blood oh. uh, circles growing larger and larger uh, and then so and, and it's interesting too because it, it it lines up with the kind of questions that the doctor's asking Bruce Willis as the questions get a little more intense this guy's starting to oh, bleed out okay but I think it's interesting like again you have this whole like I don't know maybe it's like a two two and a half minute shot where huh. it's obviously unbroken like it's just a one shot dialogue scene yeah. there's no edits but I think it's interesting like you know you're you're focusing on him but at the same time you, you can't help keep glancing back down at this guy they're operating on and seeing how he's getting worse and worse yeah. and then because that eventually at the end of this um scene the doctor says to him you know why Bruce Willis is like why are you asking me so many weird questions or something and he's like well because like in a minute you're probably gonna be the sole survivor of this train crash mm. you know and you didn't uh you didn't break a single bone and that's you know where they get into the whole unbreakable portion of the movie dun, but... Dun, dun. <laughs> but no like I, I mean Shyamalan's done a lot of interesting visual things in his career but I always think unbreakable specifically and that one scene always stood out to me is just being really cool like just <laughs> I don't know it's just a cool th- like when you're storyboarding and we're trying to think of the concept of like I want to film it this way you know, I don't know. It's just interesting visually. Mm-hmm. But. I agree. A couple of interesting ones here from, uh, I mentioned this film really briefly, uh, Road to Perdition. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's the uh, one with Tom Hanks, mm-hmm. Paul Newman, Daniel Craig's in it as well, one of his younger roles. <laughs> I think it came out in 2002. But uh, it's directed by uh, Sam Mendes, who coincidentally enough went on to do um, Skyfall <laughs> <laughs> and Spectre. <laughs> So he worked with Craig in this film and obviously later on in the Bond films. But mm-hmm. um, Craig's not the main character, though Tom Hanks is. But there's a really good scene in this movie where, um, and this is, I mean, this is, again, this is a minor spoiler. It doesn't affect the plot too much. But let's say it's maybe, it's within the first hour of the film. Uh, Tom Hanks goes to basically collect a debt. He's playing like a, he's a gangster, I guess you'd call it. He works for a gangster played by Paul Newman. And he just sort of like goes out and collects money that's owed to the to the family. Mm-hmm. That's what Tom Hanks' role is. He's sort of like... The son that the the Paul Newman character never had, even though he has a son played by Daniel Craig, but he doesn't like his son because <laughs> he's just like a hothead. I don't and, like you, right? He wants Tom Hanks. So who, wouldn't want, who, who wouldn't want Tom Hanks as his son? But uh, <laughs> so anyway, so Tom Hanks goes to collect a debt from this guy, and it's at like this like jazz club. And again, I think it takes place like it's like early, early twentieth century, maybe and like nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. Yeah, but yeah, it's at a jazz club, and um, so again, there's very little dialogue in this scene. That's sort of like what you alluded to earlier, a couple of the Pixar examples, mm-hmm. but. I think it's really interesting too how you can look up this scene again on YouTube if you want. Just like I don't know, type in "Road to Perdition Jazz Club" or something. But he just goes to deliver a note to this guy, and the guy like before Tom Hanks goes into this guy's office, like the the guy's henchman or whatever says, "Oh, you know, so and so is here to see you." And the guy like puts a gun on the desk in front of him and puts like a book over it because he's like, you know, he doesn't know if the guy's here, if Tom Hanks is here to kill him or what he's there for. So he's got a gun ready just in case, right? So that plays into later on in this scene. So Tom Hanks goes in and hands this guy a note. And the guy just says, you know, what, am I behind again? Like, on the payments? Like, am I in trouble? And Tom Hanks just shrugs. Like, I don't know. Like, you just read the note, right? So this guy opens this letter, and um, he, he looks at the letter, and he just, he doesn't really react to it. He sort of, like, tilts his head like he's curious. And he, like, looks at his henchman guy, and then he keeps, like, Tom Hanks is starting to notice something's off here. So then he's, he's like, looking, Tom Hanks is, like, looking around the room at these two guys. And then it's just, like, a, it's just, like, a, a one-minute sequence of these two guys. The camera just cuts back and forth between their two glances at each other almost like western style like mm-hmm. they both know something's wrong here and then Tom Hanks because again and the music is so loud in this this is happening like in an office in the jazz club and the music is so loud like it's like it's shaking the whole room right because we're in this jazz club and then uh, because because of the vibrations of the music outside the desk is shaking and Tom Hanks notices the gun under the guy's book because the gun's starting to oh. like shake out from under the Uh-oh. book <laughs> so then like they have again they have these like quick little glances and then you can tell the guy behind the desk is getting ready to go for the gun so Tom Hanks like beats him to it grabs the gun shoots him in the head shoots a henchman guy and then he takes a look at the note the note that he was told to deliver and the note basically said like 
Hanks's character in the film, I think his name is Michael Sullivan. So the note says, kill Sullivan and all your debts are paid. Oh, snap. <laughs> so then he realizes he's been, like, backstabbed, right? So and then the movie from there really kicks off into a different gear. And then there's a scene later in the film, and this is where you may want to skip ahead. This is more of a serious spoiler, but um, T- Tom Hanks throughout the film uh, wants to get revenge on Daniel Craig's character because in the beginning of the film, Craig kills um, Hanks's wife and I think his other son as well. He tries to kill the whole family, but he he only kills half of them, I guess. And Tom Hanks and his other son get away, and they go on the run. So throughout the whole film, Tom Hanks is wanting to find and kill the Daniel Craig character, and eventually he gets someone inside the family to leak the information of what hotel that he's staying at. Mm. I wish I could remember Craig's character's name so I could say it. But anyways, so as you know, like, so Sam Mendes has a history uh, throughout his films of doing, you know, the one-take shot. Okay. He obviously made it a huge part of 1917. The whole film was basically almost a one-take with a few cuts, but... Um, Rose Perdition is one of his earlier examples of a, a where he did a short scene with a one shot. I think it's really great. It's when it just shows Tom Hanks going into the hotel. He, he rides up the elevator. Like the, the guards are just letting him pass because they know he's there to kill so and so. So once he gets off this elevator, is when the one track start. The one shot track starts. It, it the camera is like it's obviously on like a uh, like a lift or a, a boom. Well, yeah, it's like what it's, do it's they call those things? I don't know. Like the basically the camera is on the ceiling and then it pans down as he's walking down this hallway. Okay. And the camera follows. So the camera is is ahead of him as Hanks is walking towards the camera, and then as he turns the corner towards the other guy's hotel room, the camera goes behind him and starts following him into the hotel room, Ooh. and then it comes around. The, so then basically Hanks walks into the. You see him walk into a bathroom, and then he like he. It's obviously Craig's character is implied to be in the bathtub. Hanks walks in, just shoots him three times, and walks out. And then as he walks out, his elbow like nudges the nudges the the door of the bathroom on the way out. And as the door swings back, the mirror comes into view. Uh, and, that's, and that's how they show you that Craig's character was shot. It's just a really cool visual scene. Like the fact that obviously, um, you know, the, the we get that he's dead without right. You know, his body. yeah. There's no dialogue involved, and and yeah, they don't make a habit of showing the actual death itself. But then they have a clever way of kind of showing the body, yeah. and then cut to the next scene i don't know i thought that was a really cool scene so yeah because those kind of things though too you don't want to leave it up to chance like oh did he actually kill him it's like, right yeah they were leaving like holes it's like no he's dead dead here you go so I, had some, I had a couple more examples i wanted to talk to you talk, talk about but they're not very strong i'm going to skip those for next time when i put a little more thought into them or how i want to articulate it a bit better but i'm going to finish off with i think the strongest film on this list for to fit this example and it helps that i just watched it the other night this is part of the reason why i was so tired today is because i was probably up to like 2 30 watching on, on netflix the other night but i got an email that you were watching bad boys is it bad boys no 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 gosh no. <laughs> <laughs> imagine if i kind of off with a i'm not ending it off with a michael bay film of all things no um i couldn't sleep the other night so i just put on netflix and i was wanting to watch i want to watch something that was like a quiet film something I could fall asleep to but of course because this is such a good film and I've seen it probably a dozen times already I still felt compelled to watch it through to the end because I, I enjoy the film so much uh, and it's one of the best examples I can think of for this list it's the 2007 great year uh, um, I, I mean I want to say classic at this point since it's been out for and people have probably already seen it uh, the Coen Brothers No Country for Old Men okay I mean the film has so many sequences that have no dialogue and the way scenes are shot, it's it's more impressive that you don't need dialogue to understand what's going on in these scenes. A lot of it, like, okay, a lot of those scenes revolve around the whole cat and chase mentality between Llewellyn Moss, the Josh Brolin character, and then Anton Chigurh, the Javier Bardem, who's chasing him throughout the film for the money. Why are you staring at me like you don't know what I'm talking about? I'm wondering if cat and chase is a saying. Cat and chase? Yeah. Well, cat and mouse. Didn't I say cat and mouse? You said cat and chase. I thought it's a cat and mouse game. Okay. 
That was what I meant to say. Sorry. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, it was good. I, I was stuck on that. Okay, keep going. So there's two specific examples. Um, anyway, I guess minor spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie by now, like, come on. But minor spoilers here. This is within the first hour of the film. But um, there's two separate sequences where um, Anton's character, so Javier Bardem, he's trying to track down this money, like $2 million, mm. that was um, recovered by Josh Brolin's character from a drug deal gone bad at the beginning of the film. And... Uh, so Brolin is like stashing the money. I shouldn't say it's the character's name. Moss, Llewellyn Moss. He's stashing the money at this hotel. He stashed it up in the in the vents. Yep. Right. And then he he knows that the um, cartel is tr- is looking for the money too. So he goes back to the same hotel, rents an adjacent room, goes into the other room, and tries to get the money out of the vent without because he knows that they're probably the, the the cartel is probably waiting in his room for him to come back and because they can't find the money. Mm. So then. So Anton's character shows up and kills everyone and kills all the cartel people that are waiting for him in the hotel room and then realizes Moss has already taken off with the money. Mm-hmm. So then there's another like cat and mouse sequence where Moss goes to a different hotel and this time he realizes like, well, how would they find me the first time? He opens this satchel full of money, digs through it and he finds that there was like, a transmitter receiver in it. So they were tracking it with a... And this is back in... Like, the film takes place in 1980. It was revealed earlier. But again... This must be a big tracker then. I also like how there's no... There's no timestamp on this film. Like the film was open with like a subtitle saying like, mm. you know, the year. Yeah. The only time the year, but you, so throughout the film, you're kind of getting the idea this film was not set in present day. Like when it came out in 07, because just because of the outfits people are wearing mm. and the type of cars they're driving, you're like, I think it's an older period piece, but I can't really tell. There's a very subtle scene. One of the few scenes of dialogue in the film that really does uh, make an impact is when, oh, you remember that scene where Anton is... Uh, having that one-on-one with the gas station owner, the yeah. old guy that he's sort of like yes. terrifying. Yes. And then like Anton flips the coin, tells him to call it. And then Anton says, he says like, you know what date is on this coin? And the old guy says, no. And he says, 1958, it's been traveling 22 years to get to this point. Mm. So then you do the math in your head and you're like, oh, okay. So the movie takes place in 1980. Mm-hmm. I think that's a cool way to get the year across without just yeah, blatantly right saying it or showing it to the, to the uh, viewer. But uh, anyway, so later on in the film, Moss finds out that the Anton's tracking the money with the receiver. And then, of course, like at this point, Moss shows up outside his door and, um, you know, gains access to the hotel room. Moss flees out to the street and then they have this like tense shootout. But again, like, I don't know. There's so many scenes in this film where you can go like, I didn't time it, but I'd say like at least five, six minutes with no dialogue. There's just, you, you know, and there's no internal monologue. Characters aren't talking to themselves and being like, oh, what do I do? Like, it's just more like you're just you're in the scene. You're just so invested and you're. You're, you're thinking what the what you're trying to think what the the character is thinking mm. without them outright spelling it out uh honestly the character who has the most lines in the whole film is the tommy lee jones character the sheriff because he's relaying these events that are happening to either you know his colleagues or his his wife or whatever and mm-hmm. but there's really a little dialogue in the rest of the film between like honestly the the main the the antagonist moss and anton even though they they cross paths several times in the film they never actually talk to each other <laughs> mm. so that's weird yeah uh, so and again I mean obviously this was based on the Cormac McCarthy novel yes. which was like faithfully adapted so the Coen brothers didn't like put their own spin on it or anything so the book is great obviously but the fact that it was translated so well to film is a testament to just how good the Coen brothers are directing mm. so I don't know like I said it's a film that I can always go back and watch and just be amazed by something new every time mm-hmm. but yeah visually I think that's the best example I can think of of a film that has almost no dialogue yet still manages to get everything across to you if you're a patient enough viewer to put the pieces together you know what I mean I think in those kind of scenes though it's also important what background noise and music mm. is played also and there was hardly any music yeah in the film. it's very yeah. quiet in yeah. that film um, which fits the setting very mm-hmm. well but you don't want to have those scenes that have like blaring music in the background no, it's no. like a club or something i guess but mm-hmm. yeah like you could definitely ruin a scene like that easily right 
That's all. All right. I think that's a good one to end it off on. So um, you would say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what's, so the question I was trying to think earlier, the question, how to phrase it um, for the email. So if you guys want to email us about, um, okay, well, I'll put it this way. Rather than just being generic and saying, give us a list of your favorite visual moments of films. Why do I say this? What, what, what aspects of film, you know, based on your, based on your personal interest in films, like what type of genres you like to watch or certain films you do or don't enjoy, what, what, what aspect of filmmaking do you enjoy the most? Like when you're, you know, do you, are you, how do I phrase this? You know, do you enjoy like visual effects more? Do you like watching big CGI films? Do you prefer films that are more a smaller scale, like independent films? I don't know. Like do you have a preference of what type of storytelling you prefer? You know, do you, do you like movies that are original ideas? Do you, or do you know, a lot of people just like things that are adapted or based on previous source material. Yeah, documentary, exactly. What, I don't know, what's your, what's your main interest when you're watching? When you're, when you're scrolling through Netflix, you're trying to look for something to watch. What, mm, what, what tickles what your, what draws you in? Yeah, exactly. What draws you in? Let's, let's pose a basic question like that and see if we can get a couple of replies. So, you want to get the email shout out? Of course. You may email your answer to us at whenoppositesreact at gmail.com. What would Extra Life Sure, I can talk about Extra Life. Extra Life for us is on November 6th and 7th from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. We are raising money for McMaster Children's Hospital. Um, we are almost at our goal. We are so very close, and um, we would love a little push if you wouldn't mind helping us out financially. But if you cannot do that, we would love to see you on game day. We will be playing Mario Party. We will be playing probably Fall Guys a whole bunch again. Mario, Pokemon... Uh, Tyler will be playing Apex and MLB because that's what he does. Um, and yeah, just come and tune in. Um, th- yeah, 12 hours shouldn't be too bad this time. I'm, I'm looking forward to just straight 12 hours and donuts. I'll be ordering donuts. Um, but yeah, and we'll have extra leftover Halloween candy because this is the last podcast before Halloween. So yeah, can't eat it all before then. But yeah, we are, if you wanted to help us out, we are uh, at extralife.org and we are the cookie clan if you'd like to look us up thank you very much well since Sarah just reminded me obviously that you know uh, Halloween's coming up hope everybody out there has a safe and happy Halloween weekend it's supposed to be a wet Halloween weekend yeah. take your kids out though if you have kids if, if they're able to if they're old enough or if you know you have the ability to do so take your kids out Halloween's important it's different from when we were younger I feel like our kids nowadays don't have as much of an impact well, it's just every year it's less and less kids, know, less and, and I, less people giving out candy. It's just the way it's evolving, but I still think it's an important holiday. It's like people, I, for, I, for the people that enjoy handing out and, and decorating their houses. I feel yeah. it's more important for them too to be able to enjoy. Yeah, the holiday. like I want. I bought a Halloween decoration this year. Gosh darn it! You're gonna kids are gonna come and see it. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's <laughs> got a little intense, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it's my first Halloween decoration. All right, that's not a witch that laughs at you five billion times mm. and annoys the crap out of you. No. He's cute. He's a cute friend. So, yeah, I hope everybody has a great weekend. And uh, we'll be back same time next week. Bye. Bye.